just in time for summer, the folks at Epic Brewing have released a new canned cocktail, the Utah Margarita. A delicious blend of real lime and agave, the Utah Margarita is ready to drink by the river or in the park. And here's the kicker, no need to buy it at a liquor store. Pick up a six-pack of Epic Brewing's Utah Margarita at any local Harmon's or Trader Joe's, or visit Epic Brewing on State Street in downtown Salt Lake City. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. What can Salt Lake City do about homelessness? And what's within our power? It's been the central question in this year's mayoral race, which is why we hosted deep dives with our three mayoral candidates on this specific topic. In the final installment of our series of three interviews over three days, I ask Mayor Erin Mendenhall about her record and her philosophy around homelessness. Stick around to the end for some analysis from myself and lead producer Emily Means, including some notable updates. It's Thursday, November 9th. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt Lake. Mayor Aaron Mendenhall, you've been in office for three years now. In a couple sentences, how would you characterize your approach to homelessness in Salt Lake City? It is the number one issue that I and my team deal with on a day-to-day basis, and it has been since the beginning. But I would say that the relationship that surrounds that work has shifted pretty dramatically in those three years. Hmm. How so? In the beginning and for probably a couple decades previous, the city really stood alone. We came in, there was no winter shelter. It was the first winter without the road home downtown. And we needed a place for people to go. The The state needed a place, but no one was doing anything about it. So we opened Sugar House DI. We worked again the next year with Switchpoint to open The Point, which became permanent supportive housing, and then Ramada on North Temple last year. But what changed is that we've been able to cultivate more responsibility with our state and our county partners. I think that should have been there the whole time. But the way that the city has failed to build those kind of longstanding and productive relationships over the previous years meant that not only Salt Lakers, but legislators and the rest of the state has seen historically homelessness as, quote, Salt Lake City's problem to deal with. And even casting blame about where homelessness comes from and um, having a myopic focus on the capital city, which is really shifting right now. Well, and I think that does feel like the predominant tension, but a lot of even Salt Lakers feel like, well, this is the capital city, right? So how much of this work is the city's responsibility? We take it very seriously. And I want to just mention that the solution to homelessness is housing, but that we've also been on a course since the early 80s in the Reagan administration where uh, mental health was basically decimated. The federal government failed to replace any network of access to mental health needs at the community level and found finally a program and a model specifically for the those suffering from mental illness who are living on our streets in Miami, Florida, which Florida is not a place that I've typically looked for inspiration from. I mean, 
It is my home state, so <laughs> no I often find inspiration there. But <laughs> politically, Allie, that is just not my sister city. <laughs> but they're doing a fantastic job specifically related to those suffering with mental illness on the streets who in most other states and including our state ends up being a criminal justice cycle where they don't receive the treatment and the support that they need and they don't get permanent supportive housing as easily as other people who go through the services system. I do want to linger on this question for a minute of the city's responsibility, though, because I am curious in terms of the nuts and bolts of getting people sheltered, especially in a winter, what is the city's responsibility in your view? Our responsibility is to bring the other partners who have the funds and, frankly, the authority to help complete the picture of answering the questions that have remained unanswered around homelessness. For the city, it's our authority through the state, as it is for any city to do land use. So that means zoning, of course, but it also means making sure that our zoning not only invites affordability, but perhaps even requires it in order to build new buildings in Salt Lake City. And then we get into financing. Um, In the state of Utah, cities can't do inclusionary zoning, which happens in a lot of other states where you could say within a quarter mile or half mile of fixed transit, like our track system, if you're going to build multifamily, you have to include X percentage affordability. Can't do that in the state of Utah, basically unless the city fully funds that. And when you can't control the market, then you don't know if you'd be able to fund every piece of affordability being required within it. So instead, we put a lot of money on the table. We use low interest financing and we put it out there for the private market who is building a lot of housing to the tune of more than 11,000 permitted units in the year 2021, just in Salt Lake City. But in order to use our money, you have to include affordability. And we do deed restrictions to make sure it lasts. And that's been the way that Salt Lake City's worked within sort of the confines of our state code, which we have had to be creative with. In addition to that, we're doing things like using our zoning and changing our zoning to allow for tiny homes. And that was a a vision that I wanted to bring to Salt Lake City that I've seen work in other parts of the country, particularly in sort of enticing people who have been chronically homeless, who may typically say no to congregate shelter situations like our homeless resource centers, but who would say yes to that, that dignified living situation of having their own place their own front door. As I have been out on the street meeting people over the years that I've been doing public service, meeting people in the midst of a blizzard or late at night and have said to people, if we if we have a van, if we could bring it up, would you come to the shelter right now? We, ha- we have a bed for you. And time and again, people told me, no, I, I don't want to go to the shelter. That's not a place that works for me. I don't feel comfortable. A number, as reasons as unique as each individual. So I think it's the city's responsibility not only to make sure affordability can find an, an easy path here in the private market work that's happening to dramatically grow the housing situation in Salt Lake City, but also to change our codes and put the money on the table in a creative way 
that creates different types of housing. Well, we talked to Salt Lake City Planning Director Nick Norris a couple weeks ago, and he told us it is difficult to convince developers to build affordable housing because they want to make a profit, of course. But you are the executive director of the city's redevelopment agency in your role as mayor. Why not leverage this institution to just go full speed ahead with buildings that are city-owned already? The RDA actually has been tremendously successful in the last three years at getting affordability built into private development. So historically, uh, the RDA hasn't really needed to be the owner and operator. And we don't want to build projects. And we've seen the projects happen over the course of American history uh, where it, it does not breed a thriving neighborhood environment when you have government-owned, exclusively low-income housing situations. What we have seen success with here locally and, and nationally in the last decade or so are these mixed-income housing developments where you have both market rate and affordable and deeply affordable combined into one building. And when we build, when anybody builds exclusively low-income businesses in that area, they have a hard time thriving and surviving. We've seen that along North Temple for decades. We know that in some areas, even though we need affordability throughout the city, there are some neighborhoods in the city that need a lot more market rate so that they can foster the kind of business, small business environment that uh, makes thriving neighborhoods happen. So the city has found success in creating affordability through the private market with about 2,500 units in the last three years, which is quite a lot, actually, especially when you look historically. Salt Lake City didn't invest a penny in affordable housing before 2009. Nothing, absolutely nothing. So it sounds like to me, the answer to my question of what is the city's role in all of this your view is it's preventative. It's no. creating housing so that we don't, you don't, well, is I, that not enough? I would say it's three things. It's convening, like bringing our partners to the table. Mm -hmm. It's funding and it's land use and zoning. And the, the funding has been, as I said, really increased in the last few years. The zoning is something we're still working with where we saw single room occupancy zoning expanded by the council last year that we brought to them. We saw tiny homes approved. We have another tiny home ordinance before the council in the next couple of months. And coming up with our affordable housing plan, it's included in our thriving in place, our gentrification mitigation plan. And between can bringing our partners to the table, putting the money on the table, and then creating the zoning context for more diverse types of housing and more affordable housing to happen, that is a powerful combination that is partially preventative in keeping people in their homes. But we're also, you know, we're going to be opening more than 400 permanent supportive and transitional housing units by April 15th when the winter shelters close. Like that's the kind of massive step forward that I want to see again next year and the next year, but we can't do it alone. The state funded most of that. So we're really seeing the dial shift on the convening part and the partnership and that's the long-term progress that I don't think we've seen as a city before. The Living Traditions Festival is back in downtown Salt Lake City, May 17th through 19th. And this is When I Come Alive. 
It is so easy to sell me on three days of Washington Square and Library Square converting to a global food court, and this festival has truly been one of my favorites for years now. Living Traditions convenes the diversity of artistic traditions, food heritage, music, and art from the many cultures that have made Utah their home. You can expect everything from live music and dance to hands-on workshops, a little shopping, Sundance film screenings, and Bohemian Brewery. There is something for the whole family, and it's free entry. Come celebrate all of the rich cultures that make up our community. Find more information on the festival and view the full program guide at livingtraditionsfestival.com or on Instagram and Facebook at SLC Living Trad. We talk a lot on this show about our city's crown jewels. What are the institutions that open doors in our community and regulate its pulse? I choose Salt Lake Community College, and it is a home for incredibly focused Salt Lakers. Nearly 80% of their students work while going to school, many full-time jobs. If I could do college all over again, I would not be 33 and sitting on these damn student loans. And slick students aren't. 80% graduate with little to no student loan debt or save thousands knocking out credits before transferring to a four-year institution. Every day, Salt Lake Community College is transforming lives and communities through education. If you wanna learn something new, refine a trade, or pursue a higher degree for the first time, explore your options at slcc.edu. Study alongside hard workers, save precious money, and be one in a class of 19, not 100. I wanna talk a little bit about the situation right now with shelters. You initiated a moratorium on permanent homeless shelters, which the city council then extended. What did you hope to accomplish with the moratorium? I hoped to accomplish what was becoming a reconcentration of services only four years after the state decided to close the downtown road home shelter where we'd concentrated services for a few decades. And where on a winter night, you could have 1,100 people, you know, crammed in to get off the street, which was good to have a place, a low barrier shelter place that people could go. But it was really not succeeding in connecting people with the housing and the services in particular, because it was a one size fits all for everybody. The state really led in saying, we're going to put these specific homeless resource centers, one for men, single men, one for single women, and then one that allows couples to come in together into the shelter. And, the, you know, they lim eliminated about 300 beds in the system by doing that. And it's not crazy math that we end up needing 300 to 400 more overflow beds each winter since they did that. So the, the system that was meant to go well on paper years ago didn't. And when we had the detox center on 300 West that is owned by Volunteers of America, we became aware that Shelter of the Homeless who owns the shelters was going to purchase that from VOA to potentially turn into another shelter without any public process, without any planning with the city. It would have basically triangulated the two new homeless resource centers with this new third one and reconcentrated homeless services, the majority of them, for the county right back into one neighborhood. So we needed to figure out, which is what this ordinance is all about, how does the city accept applications 
and be able to consider them in the context of where they're applying to operate. The ordinance itself actually expands places in the city where homeless shelters can happen from the way it has been previously. And just for listeners, that hasn't, that's still in the process with our city council. So we'll see what they end up determining on it. But I think the context of a neighborhood, like what it's close to, whether that's transit, groceries, job centers, schools, single family homes, multifamily homes, retail, et cetera. It was a really important part of our process to cite the two homeless resource centers that we did five years ago. And it needs to be in the context of how we cite future resource centers in the future. So that was our hope. Would it be fair to say that your hope was that the moratorium would encourage other cities to open shelters? No, I don't think that it has a direct line on that. But we have seen with the state's leadership in the legislative session of last year, the process that invited, I'll say, city mayors from Salt Lake County to come together and suggest a site for the winter shelter. That was it was actually a phenomenal change. No other cities were talking really about what are we going to do this winter when there's not enough beds for the last three years. Mill Creek did step up two years ago and had a, a small winter shelter for single men that served about 60 people. We're grateful for that, but this by no means was a countywide conversation. But with our partnership with the state and county mayor, we did that process this year. And as you probably know, Mill Creek has an old county library site that's been open for winter overflow. The intention, I think the gesture is really in the right direction, that we look beyond South Salt Lake, Midvale, and Salt Lake City, who host the homeless resource centers today. But the product ultimately was overwhelmingly insufficient. You know, we needed a 400-bed location, and we got about 100, 120 out of the Mill Creek. And in addition, it's only open at night. And then everyone is bussed back downtown and dropped off in Rio Grande. That's not a solution. And it's really sad. It's disappointing. It's heartbreaking that we have a state with a billion-dollar budget surplus. And there are people being dropped off in the snow every morning, all winter. Well, and I think the conversations I hear among Salt Lakers, too, are a misunderstanding of the decision to transport people away from services. Because you pointed to the fact that like the bulk of services are downtown. You've got Fourth Street Clinic, you've got Rescue Mission, Crossroads, et cetera. How did we end up with a solution where we do bus people away from services? And why is that a good thing? There is no incentive or teeth, frankly, for a city to say yes to a winter overflow shelter. It's honestly by the good of Mayor Jeff Silvestrini's heart that that thing exists in Mill Creek. There is no reason for another city to step up and say, we will be a partner and host. And I think that needs to be there. So what that likely means is the state deciding, hopefully with cities and the county, that they will pick up the mantle of creating some additional shelter and I hope it includes a sanctioned camp for RVs to park that right now are scattered around cities on roadways and that it could flex as a winter overflow as needed and have the capacity to do so and keep people out of the weather 24 hours a day if they want to be inside. It sounds like everyone kind of knew that 
the Mill Creek option was going to be insufficient as an overflow shelter. Did Salt Lake City put forth an option for an overflow shelter this year? Yeah, we did. We were one of about nine cities who identified a couple of buildings that could be considered. Do they have bathrooms? Are they heated? And what would transportation needs be for any of these given idea sites? And then the state, uh, Wayne Niederhauser's office, took that list and basically helped us shape up what would work and what wouldn't work. So let's say there was an empty grocery store in a city that was heated and could host several hundred people overnight, that city would still have to allow through a temporary land use ordinance for that to happen on that site. Because if it's a grocery store, it's not allowed to be a residential use unless you make it so through your city council. And quite honestly, there are cities who were not going to help and they weren't going to participate. You mentioned that one of your hopes is that we can look at sanctioned camping in the future. But you've said in the past that you don't support sanctioned camping. What's led you to change your mind? Actually, I didn't. And when people say that, they're cutting half of my sentence off. What I have said is I don't support the city owning or operating a sanctioned camp. That's not something that this city or any city can successfully do on their own, especially when we don't receive any money for doing resource centers, sanctioned camps, and the operations therein. Just this last year, Salt Lake City began to get mitigation dollars from the state, the way that uh, Midvale and South Salt Lake have for years. Salt Lake City was guaranteed zero because of, honestly, relationships between the city and the state with previous mayor. Uh, we were cut out from any support, and those mitigation dollars just began flowing into Salt Lake City in July, and they're directed not at operations of a shelter, but at preserving some safety and, and quality of life in the communities that host resource centers. Now, there's a lot of conversations with the Utah Homeless Council about mitigation dollars being considered to support operations, but cities have never been the pass-through for that. It's always come from the state and the county and philanthropists paying for operations. But sanctioned camp, an RV parking lot, and perhaps a place that includes overflow capacity indoors is absolutely something we need to see, we want to see, and that we'd consider partnering to have happen. But this needs to be led by the state and the county. The kinds of questions I'm asking you are the kinds of questions that I feel like I hear people asking each other day to day in this city. And one of them is, okay, while we have this conversation about sanctioned camping and who hosts it and how it's funded and where it happens... Why can't we put porta potties and dumpsters near camps so that people can keep their space clean and prevent health hazards? Like, this is a city with so few public restrooms. It doesn't give a lot of options. These feel like sort of humane, common sense solutions to the average Salt Laker, I think. Yeah, we have done uh, sort of roaming porta potty stations. We had one off of Fleet Block in 20 and 21. We have moved them around from locations and we installed what's called the Portland Loo, the permanent outdoor bathroom situation when the road home downtown was still open. And that restroom is still there. The issue is also that we needed around the clock staffing or whenever the restrooms were unlocked and available, we had to employ people to make sure that people use the restrooms for that purpose. 
because they became places where basically drug deals would happen and drug use. And sometimes people would not come out of the restrooms for a very long time. And so with the abatements happening and closing encampments, according to the camping ordinance in Salt Lake City, uh, moving the porta-potties and accommodating what ultimately has become short-term camps wasn't feasible anymore. But I do agree that, especially with the closures in 2020 of public spaces like libraries and small businesses where people who are living on the street could go in and use a restroom, when we lost all of those spaces, it became extra obvious that we needed more public restrooms. That's when the porta-potties came out um, and we're moving around the city. But I think in the long term, our public buildings are also there for the public to use if they need a restroom. But I'm not opposed to us looking at more permanent restroom situations. Obviously, there has been criticism by unsheltered Salt Lakers and homelessness advocates around camp abatements in the past couple of years. We know this is something that the city and the county health department partner on in tandem. And we understand why it's necessary for health and safety, but is there not a better way? I think that the better way is that there's a sanctioned place where people can go and know that they will not have to be moved. And again, the city can't do that on our own, but the state and the county who have funding for those kind of operations could do that. And we, they know, and, and we are in pretty constant conversation about how that could happen. But if you, if you focus in on just the abatements as they happen today, that's a really good question for Angela Dunn, who runs the Salt Lake County Health Department. And when her team that leads abatements goes into any city to do those cleanings, they ask that that city's team of both public safety with the police officers and other staff um, to help them do those cleanings. So we, we work with them as partners. We coordinate with them in determining which camps are have come up to that level. They need to be abated. And that is a, a pretty constantly evolving conversation. So if there's ways to do it better, I know that we want to hear it. And we're also hearing it all the time and working with the county on trying to evolve those circumstances. But it's the county that has the authority to do an abatement, not a city. There are people who are on the city justice court schedule right now who've been cited for camping. Would the city consider changing its no camping ordinance? No, we wouldn't. When we look at cities who have allowed sanctioned camps to crop up um, sort of naturally, you know, and then and then sanction them because they're there. We have not seen good things happen for those individuals living in those camps. Um, more reluctance to engage in services. And our purpose here every single day and with every action we take around homelessness should be to connect people with services and get people into housing that works for them, into shelter that works for them. Salt Lake City, the state of Utah, can do better than people in canvas tents outside. We have to do better. We should have the pods that are happening in Reno right now, tiny pods that have mini splits, heaters and coolers and have enough space for someone's belongings and a bed. They're not that expensive really. And that's the kind of sanctioned camps that I'm encouraging and working with Wayne Niederhauser and the state to help create. And we would help to create them in every way that we possibly can as a city, from funding to partnership and zoning. But 
just allowing people to have no better option is not a solution for us. We can do better than that. Our state has enough money for that. And they have local partners in Salt Lake City who want to see that happen. So that's that's our goal. That's what we're going for. I open by asking you about your philosophy on this issue, but in three years as the city's chief executive, I have to imagine that you've learned a lot. <laughs> so reflecting on your first term as our leader, is there anything you would change about how your administration has handled homelessness in the city? That's a good question. And I honestly think that we're adapting every week in how we handle homelessness. We've had to handle a whole lot in three years citywide, you know, and nationally too. I mean, the the context of having a global pandemic, also of having state and county receive millions of dollars to help lease motels and hotels that were vacant to get people off the streets um, and not have them go into congregate shelter never happened before. And now those dollars are gone. And we're evolving around um, realizing the economic shifts that happen. So I think for one, um, we saw a lot of hotels and motels go up for sale and now they're all gone. They've all been bought up, but I wish we would have known early on that, um, we could purchase those and we could have transformed them perhaps more quickly into permanent supportive housing. But we, I think we did the best that we can with what we know at the time. And my invitation to our team that we work with at Salt Lake City is to be constantly curious about how can we be better tomorrow and that as public servants, we are listening and we're being told in really clear terms from residents across the board who have really different opinions and some have louder voices than others. Uh, We're listening all the time and we want to evolve. We want to do this better. And most of all, we don't, we should not do this alone. We don't want to do this alone, and it is not a solution for us to do this alone. We need the state and we need the county, not only because they have money for things we don't, but because they have authorities that we don't. So we're going to keep changing. That's that's our job. Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me on, Allie. Lead producer Emily Means, I feel like that conversation was long enough ago that the temperature was the same in February as it is now in November. Right. Well, it was funny because, you know, we were talking about winter overflow operations for the Mm -hmm. previous winter. We've now just begun winter overflow operations for this winter. Well, and I'm glad you brought up winter overflow operations because let's talk about it. That was one difference that I noted is that we have been told the overflow shelters this winter will be operating 24 hours. We will no longer be busing people back to downtown Salt Lake from, I think, the overflow shelters in West Valley this winter. Is that right? Yes, it is. For the very first time ever. For the very first time ever, West Valley's come to the table and um, people won't have to get up at 6 a.m. and be dropped off in the snow in downtown Salt Lake. So right there, there's, let's start with a little bit of optimism. That's an improvement. I think that's a nice place to start. And I like starting on a positive note anyway, sometimes, <laughs> especially with this humanitarian crisis in our city and state. I mean, it's devastating to talk about this and especially to experience this. So I also wanted to talk a little bit more about 
the planning around winter overflow um, Mm. because this is something that I've really tried to understand. As the state has required Salt Lake County, the mayors of Salt Lake County to come together, they've set a deadline for when the mayors can submit their plan to the Office of Homeless Services. I want to say those meetings are closed. The meetings between the mayors specifically are closed. And so we do not know what those conversations are really like and Mm -hmm. what, you know, what options are being put forth by what mayors or if there are better options or let, you know, it, we just don't know. And so we're really relying on our elected officials to, portray this to us truthfully and as transparently as possible. So I don't know. That's just one thing that as a journalist, I really wish I had some more information about to share with people. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can see why no elected official wants to be on the record saying we don't want to house people this winter, right? And additionally, Allie, I mean, One of the reasons why this is hosted as a closed door meeting, or at least what I've been told, is because it involves real estate transactions, right? They're talking, Mm. they're trying to figure out where exactly in their city they can put uh, an overflow shelter. And like Mayor Mendenhall mentioned, you know, someone might suggest a vacant grocery store or something like that. And We know when we've seen cities try to cite these types of resources, the political pushback that can ensue. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, one of the things that's interesting to me listening back to this conversation is what we hear very consistently from Marin Mendenhall is and and she didn't say this specifically, but we've had burn it down administrations in the past whose approach has been burn it down, right? And that her administration differentiates itself in that she thinks we can work within the system and she wants to work within the system. Like she wants to be someone who is brokering at least a smidgen of peace between the all-powerful supermajority Republican Utah legislature and the city of Salt Lake, which it often feels like, like on the low end is just not at the table and on the more extreme end is punished for its politics or being held hostage, you know, or being held hostage. Yeah. And so definitely the ethos of her campaign is look at the things that we've been able to accomplish. Look at the things that we could accomplish. These are all doable. If we stay measured, we work within the system and we have a seat at the table, which is something that I can offer the city. Now, to the average Salt Laker, you probably don't notice a difference. Like, to the average Salt Laker, I don't know that you feel more that Salt Lake has a seat at the table than it did four years ago, Mm. right? Because there's just so many ways in which we are on our knees (laughs) to the legislature day to day. On the issue of homelessness, I don't know. What do you think? I've been thinking about this a lot, Allie. Like you said, Mayor Mendenhall has said she is bringing the state and other cities to the table on this issue. Um, And so I do think that perhaps the West Valley Overflow Shelter could be an example of this. Again, though, as I mentioned, 
I don't know what those discussions looked like. Maybe West Valley freely offered this. Maybe they were like, you know what? This is the year we can step up because we have these and these resources available. So I don't know what Mayor Mendenhall's involvement was in that. Yeah. West Valley Mayor Karen Lang walked into the meeting and said, we're not leaving without an overflow overflow shelter. shelter, (laughs) Uh, I'll also point out that the Sandy City Council recently approved the opening of permanent supportive housing for our medically vulnerable, unsheltered population. That is Sandy Mm -hmm. City who has approved Mm -hmm. this. That's the other end of the valley, you know. I don't know. Again, what sort of influence Mayor Mendenhall had in that decision. But I do know that the city offered to put forth uh, $2 million to uh, help that project come to fruition. Mm -hmm. I will also note that the state of Utah put forward more funding toward homelessness in the past year. Now, most of that was one-time dollars. It was COVID funding that we had to use. One of the challenges that we're going to be looking at for the future is getting ongoing funding from the state for this issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that if we do, maybe that is a sign that Mayor Mendenhall has brought the state to the table on homelessness. So I wanted to point out some of those, what I would call successes in kind of shifting the the burden of this crisis. Mm-hmm. I am interested that you didn't bring up the sanctioned camp because to me that feels the swiftest. Like in this conversation in February, we hear the mayor say specifically, the city cannot operate a sanctioned camp on its own. This is not something that we can just do tomorrow. And then Months later, was what was it, August, the press conference September. was held? Even, September. Yeah, even more recently. Yeah, the press conference was held. And it felt like all of a sudden, the mayor, members of the city council, the state's homelessness czar, Wayne Niederhauser, are standing on this plot of land saying this will be a sanctioned camp. I mean, that felt like... Uh, not just you and I, across the city, people were like, wait, what? Okay, it's happening. Okay, it's happening. Which again, to me, indicates that maybe the state does like Mayor Aaron Mendenhall. Well, this is something I'm still, I'm kind of waiting to see how it goes, Allie, because Hmm. we've talked about this program before. It is intended as a pilot program in Salt Lake City. So what's happening in Salt Lake City on city-owned land is intended to be phase one. And then phase two, something like six months from now, that will be in the state's court, okay? The state's gonna figure that out. But right now, it kind of feels like uh, the city is holding the bag by themselves, (laughs) frankly. That's true. The city council has allocated an additional $1 million to a holding account for this um, temporary shelter community is what they're calling it. So that's at this point in time, $1.5 million total of mm-hmm. city dollars that's going towards this program. Now, the state is is stepping up in other ways for this particular phase. Uh, they've procured the, as we're calling them, pods, the units for this 50-unit sanctioned camping program. The state is also tasked with finding an operator. And at this time, that hasn't happened. It's not going well. They just opened up the request for proposals for a second time because they weren't pleased with anyone who applied previously. 
we probably won't have a decision on an operator before election day. <laughs> That's very possible, Allie. Very possible. Election day is coming up real quick here. So yeah. I'm kind of waiting to see exactly what happens with this program. Like, is the state going to put more resources into it to make it successful? Are we just going to get the pilot program and that's it? And in that case, mm -hmm. that will be that will have been Salt Lake City taking on the burden again. You know, I mean, if we're going to talk about the efficacy of this administration, we also have to talk about permanent supportive housing, because in this conversation, we hear the mayor say, and she sounds in the moment quite definitive. Salt Lake City will be opening more than 400 permanent supportive housing units by April 15th of this year. It is November 9th of this year, and we have how many? 94 beds online. 94 beds. Yes. This was supposed to be spread out across three projects. The first one to open, and the, the only successful one to date, is uh, The Point. And we talked with the operator of this project. We will link that show in the show notes for you. I mentioned the medically vulnerable program that's opening in Sandy. That was also included in this, uh, in this 400 beds. That hasn't opened yet. Now, that is in a different jurisdiction altogether, right? It's in Sandy, and they're hoping to have it opened by December 1st. They have their own mayor. They have their own mayor, right. Go talk to that mayor. <laughs> now, the other project that was included in these 400 permanent supportive housing beds uh, is what was called the Ville 1659. It was intended to be at the site of the former Ramada Inn, which had previously served as winter overflow shelter. And this deal has fallen through. Yeah. Uh, reporting from the Tribune says that the developer wasn't able to access the city's $2 million grant that they had offered. There were some legal issues there that kind of got in the way of the city releasing the money is what uh, what the Tribune reporting says. And so he's moved on. And now we're seeing that the Miller family is looking at buying that property. Yeah. <laughs> so. Which is very proximal to the ballpark that they're dreaming up for their Major League Baseball team. Right. And this would have provided 197 units of deeply affordable housing for yeah. people who are exiting homelessness. So I think that's, it's a huge loss. It's a huge mm -hmm. loss. And I saw the mayor was quoted in the Tribune saying that, Whoever owns this property should still move forward with providing housing there, deeply affordable housing there. So, hmm. Hmm. I mean, it gets at this idea that I think really differentiates Mayor Ed Mendenhall's administration from former Mayor Rocky Anderson and candidate Michael Valentine's positions on housing, which is we hear Rocky specifically talking about the idea that the city should kind of be its own developer when it comes to deeply affordable housing and affordable housing. And we hear Mayor Aaron Mendenhall saying, we don't have the resources to be our own developer in this market. Like, let's not forget the affordability crisis also affects Salt Lake City Corporation as an entity, right? Like, it also has to buy things at fair market value if there's property that it, the redevelopment agency doesn't already own. And I have to wonder if a lot of Salt Lakers would like to see something a little bit 
in the middle of the two. Like seeing the city go a little bit harder on redeveloping and developing itself and not necessarily seeing the city be the only entity incentivized to build affordable housing. Hmm. But then you try and pass incentives and you do get a fair amount of pushback from wealthier parts of the city. And so, I mean, it's such a matrix. Yeah. And we've said this before. Why would anyone want to be mayor? Why would anyone want to be mayor? I did want to mention because you pushed Mayor Mendenhall in this interview on defining what the city's role was in this homelessness Hmm. crisis. And frankly, it's kind of boring because she said zoning and land use, you know, and I think for a lot of people, they're like, can't think of anything less exciting than zoning and land use, right? I did want to mention some policies that did pass this year since we spoke with Mayor Mendenhall uh, in March. Uh, The city's new five-year housing plan passed. The city's anti-displacement plan called Thriving in Place passed. The city council approved that recently. Uh, She mentioned the ordinance that expands homeless shelter zoning. The city council approved that. Right now, we're waiting for the city council to approve the affordable housing incentives that you mentioned have received some pushback. So things have happened this year, Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. Without a doubt. But what kind of impact will they have? I think that's what we're left wondering. Yeah. Do you want to talk about her assertion that Salt Lake City didn't invest a penny in affordable housing before 2009? Because this feels like it's been kind of a point of contention between she and former Mayor Rocky Anderson. Yes. So we were really curious about this. So we asked the administration (laughs) (laughs) to clarify, and the administration said that they believe there is a difference between essentially writing a check to build affordable housing and facilitating a loan or waiving fees that allow for the building of affordable housing. And when we released this show, former Mayor Rocky Anderson reached out to us and he said, but wait, in 2000, we established the Housing Trust Fund and Salt Lake City's Housing Trust Fund comes from the general fund. So those are city dollars. So, you know, there's this uh, disagreement here between the two camps on whether Salt Lake City has funded affordable housing in the past. And can I just say, boy, as just like kind of a regular schmegular dude, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care who has been better at building affordable housing. In 2009, Emily, I was graduating high school, okay? I I just, I do think there has to be a point at which we say, fine, fine. I don't care. Like, whoever wins my vote, it's not going to be based on who's right about how much money the city's invested in affordable housing. At the end of the day, the average Salt Laker is experiencing an astronomical increase in their cost of living. They are anxious about whether or not they will be able to continue to live here successfully, whatever that looks like for them. So I think this is the kind of minutia that it's easy to get tangled in when you're campaigning because you are in the soup. You are so in the soup. I invite everyone to remove themselves from the pot to just have a healthy look and think about how the policies that they're proposing intersect with the core problem that Salt Lakers are facing, whether they're currently sheltered or currently unsheltered, which is an affordability crisis. 
If you are staring at a ballot and you have an incumbent candidate on your ballot, the question that I think you really are tasked with asking yourself is, could it be better? Could it be worse? (laughs) And I think that is the decision that voters are making this year. And just a reminder that we're making it on Tuesday, November 21st. (laughs) Because that is election day in Utah, even though that's not election day in the rest of the country. (laughs) Do not forget to mail in your ballot. Postmark your ballot by Monday, November 20th. Correct. You can vote and register. If you're not registered yet, you can register in person on election day. You can vote in person on election day. Very cool thing we do in Utah. A very cool thing we do in Utah. Same day election day registration and voting. Yep. All right, Allie. All right, Emily. (laughs) Let's get out of here. Happy election 2023, former political reporter and lead producer Emily Means. Thank you, Allie. I'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Now go vote. Bye. Bye.